0: So happy Sunday. I have my coffee in hand and this is this week's Q&A for November 10th 2019. We've got a lot of topics to cover so let's have at it. Okay well we did a lot of stuff this week so there's a lot of uh, information up on YouTube. I posted a a bunch of videos this week. So of course we had last week's Q&A. So check that out. It was actually quite popular. Uh, Put up a Padawan lesson in regards to the versatility of the box squat. So this is probably something that we'll build on um, as we go because the box squat being as versatile as it is, that's the title. Uh, There's a a lot of ways that, that we can implement this. Not just from a powerlifting standpoint, but from a rehabilitative standpoint or a performance-related standpoint. So we'll probably touch on that topic again. Uh, Mike Robertson and I did our very first iFAST podcast. So we've only been in business 11 years and changed. So it's about time that we do something together. Um, so we're going to do that on a regular basis. But this was uh, a talk about how we actually started up and, and some of the business relationships that we built along the way. Um we got a coaching conversation with John Herding. So John was one of the original uh, intensive attendees. Um, he's a great therapist out of the Philly area. So uh, if you need some help in Philly, please go see John. Uh, but we did a, a case study. We're probably going to continue to do those because it, w- it turned out to be really, really good. And again, very, very useful for a lot of people. And so uh, be, be looking for that. Um, actually shooting a video today on some some rolling activities that you can use as a diagnostic or as treatment or as training uh, because that came up in one of this week's instagram questions um, along with some elevation training mask question that came up which was uh, really fun and enjoyable to talk about and um, we, we threw out some pain science resources. So it was a question about pain science and remember, science pain science isn't a real science because you have to call it science. Um, but, but as far as the information that, that surrounds such a topic, we, we threw out some resources for that. So make sure you check out that on Instagram. We talked a little bit about uh, shoulder injury and some breathing activities that may beneficial or even how to determine whether you need a surgery versus not needing surgery so that's on Instagram and of course the uh, daily videos for the 16% so that's basically the the week in review as far as what went up on social media and YouTube and so let's get to this week's Q&A first question and this uh, comes from Brian. So Brian writes really long questions. Thank you, Brian, for your contributions. Um, don't change a thing. I like what you're doing because it makes for a great setup, but just uh, hang in here as I, as I read through this. So with a client with an inhalation axial skeleton archetype, which would be uh, typically a, a narrow infrasternal angle for, for those who are, are following along, I want to use an exhalation strategy with my client because they are biased towards an eccentric pelvic diaphragm. So I'd use a box squat. So he's making reference to the box squat video that's up on YouTube. I would use a box squat at 90 degrees and coach the explode off the box with a strong exhalation concentric strategy. For an exhalation axial skeleton skeleton archetype wide ISA, I would promote an inhalation strategy with my client, use a deeper box squat to promote more yielding and descending pelvic diaphragm. So thanks, Brian. Um, In general, yes, but the first thing that we have to do is we have to decide what the goal is. And so uh, if, if my goal is to maximize the variability within the system using my movement system as my proxy measure, then your, your assumption is correct um, with, with a few caveats. So I can bias someone with a high box squat towards an inhalation strategy as well because through that middle range, somewhere around the sticking point is where you're gonna be biased towards a more nutated position, a more concentric pelvic diaphragm. So your understanding of, of where to, to place this person that needs a more concentric pelvic diaphragm strategy or an exhalation-based strategy is corrected about that 90-degree that angle. But remember, we can bias them above or below depending on the needs because there are some people, when we do put them on the low box, from a technical standpoint, they're using a spinal flexion-based strategy, which is what we do not want to reinforce. What we're looking for in the lower box squat is the ability to counter-nutate, uh, which is not the same thing. And so I don't want to create that, that kind of a confusion And I because I think a lot of people don't distinguish between spinal flexion and, and a counter-nutated position because the lumbar spine does move backwards. It reduces its lordosis um, when you counter-nutate versus the spinal flexion above the pelvis, which we do not want, want to utilize because it does put excessive load on those posterior spinal structures where the counter-nutation really doesn't do that to, to any great degree. So Brian, I think that you are on track with that. I think your understanding is correct, um, which is awesome. Now, so Brian asks a second question. So let's go to Brian's second question and again. Bear with me here, Brian likes to write a little bit. Uh, is a compensatory inhalation strategy a strategy someone uses when they are biased towards exhalation and compression? Absolutely. And, and so we'll, we'll talk about here in just a second. Let me finish what you wrote here. I'm watching all your videos with great interest, but I'm trying to grasp a big picture of inhalation, expansion bias, exhalation, compression bias, and the compensatory strategy one would use when they have either exhaled or an inhalation bias, so let's talk about the very first, very first compensatory strategy that's available. So if if I am exhalation biased, um, that is due to physical structure, which will eventually hash out on some level. But but let, for now, let's just say that you're going to have somebody that's going to be exhalation biased or inhalation biased. So if I'm exhalation biased, um, I have to figure out a way for, my, for me to breathe in against that strategy. And so let's talk about the infrasternal angle a little bit because that's where this infrasternal angle stuff gets really, really interesting because it is the first and the easiest way, one, for us to determine what the compensatory strategy is. And it's probably the first and most important compensatory strategy in the human because it influences the, the capabilities of the, of the uh, thoracic diaphragm to allow us to breathe in. So if I'm exhalation biased, I would normally have a down bucket handle position of the lower rib cage. But what has to happen is I have to be able to breathe in some some way, shape or form. The first compensatory strategy is to allow that that thoracic diaphragm to move. So if I'm exhalation biased, I cannot descend that, that thoracic diaphragm unless I eccentrically orient the abdominal musculature which is closing down the bucket handles. So I will release that. I will eccentrically orient external oblique as an example to allow the ISA to open. This allows the diaphragm to descend in someone that is biased towards exhalation. If I'm inhalation biased, I have to figure out a way to exhale. And so I will use the, the musculature that would close the ISA and pull the bucket handles down. And so the first compensatory strategy, again, that's easiest for me to evaluate is is the, the lower ribcage because that's where the, the greatest capability to compensate is. And so as they exhale and they close the ISA with with the external oblique, that allows me to exhale against that inhalation bias. So once again, Brian, I, I think you totally get it. Um, keep, keep uh, paying attention to, to, to what you're doing here because I, like I said I, I like your, your thought process of course because it agrees with mine um, but um, I, I think you're doing a great job of, of understanding from a distance and uh, keep the questions coming please sir because I, I do enjoy uh, the way you lay things out. So I had a question come in from Instagram from Drew and Drew writes I am keen Love the word keen, Drew, keep using it. I am keen to learn more about active ways to improve the position of the thorax and the pelvis. I was interested in the above post. So he's talking about the sled dragging post with the what's that strap. Uh, uh, Where are we? I was interested in the above post uh, never seen the exercise before do you think you could break down and explain in more detail what the exercise is doing to improve the shape of the thorax and the pelvis and would you perform this on both sides so so drew what we were doing with the with the with the long strap and again just go to what's that strap those guys apparently are doing really really well i hope we've contributed to their success um by wrapping the the strap as it's demonstrated in the video what we're doing is is we're encouraging a certain type of thoracic activity in regards to, to the muscle activity and to the, the expansion capabilities of the thorax as you breathe. So we're actually providing a leading resistance. So this is a very PNF-ish kind of a strategy in regards to the way that the strap is organized. And so what this will do, it will cre- create a lateral compression against the rib cage, which closes the the wide ISA and creates an anterior-posterior expansion as we breathe in. So we're driving upper extremity motion, we're using a compressive strategy, a manual compressive strategy on the thorax with the strap. We're driving a breathing strategy that will also enhance the, the reshaping of the thorax, and then we're driving those mechanics down into the pelvis then we superimpose the stepping strategy on top of that and we're actually reshaping the, the pelvis in that regard as well. And so we're getting a really, really big bang with, the, with this type of an activity, but that is, is in a nutshell um, why that setup was as it was. So Drew's got a second second half to this question. So let, let's get to that. Uh, I think you indicated that the current setup was suitable for a wide ISA. How would you change the exercise if you had a narrow ISA inhalation bias? Drew, this is actually a pretty simple answer. Um, Because we're using the lateral strategy to to create an anterior-posterior expansion, what we're going to do with a a, a narrow ISA is we're going to have them walk backwards. So we're going to maintain the orientation of the strap. We're just going to have them step backwards now. And so then we're going to coordinate a reach forward through the, through the upper extremity with the step back on the same side. So we're going to find a heel. We're going to create a, a, a posterior expansion on the, the stepping backward side as we push the, the same side extremity forward. And, and so now we're going to get a little bit more of a, a, a compressive strategy that will help us shape that from a, an anterior posterior aspect. So real simple, go from a lateral move to a to a, a posterior walk and and there is your, your solution in regards to modifying that for the narrow ISAs. So my next question comes from, and I'm assuming it says Dana. So I apologize, Dana, if I'm mispronouncing your name, it's D-H-A-N-A. And um, Dana asks, can you explain spinal and pelvic inhalation and exhalation in reference to client position strategies and exercise choices. So Danny gives an example. So if you're elevating the heels for lifts with clients who need range of motion, more inhalation strategy, what modifications do you use for clients that are more inhale-biased? So I'm confused with the foot position. If you supinate your feet, are you using an inhalation strategy? And if you pronate, are you using an exhalation strategy? So simply by asking your question, I think you actually understand what's going on here. So if we do have somebody that we need to bias towards inhalation, what we want to do is we want to use a heels elevator or a more supinated foot position because that is an inhaled position of the foot. So you're actually correct in your assumption. And then we would use a more pronator, a propulsive foot uh, to promote an exhalation. So we can actually do this. We can bias this in any number of ways. Even with the heels elevated, we can bias you back and forth between an inhalation and exhalation strategy just by cueing where we're going to put the load through the uh, uh, heel as the, to whether we're going towards the medial heel or, or the or the lateral aspect of the heel. So if we were doing, say, a toe touch progression with heels elevated, that would bias us towards an inhalation strategy. But we could also promote some some element of exhalation on top of that, depending on on the timing of the uh, the breath cycle and and the movement that we're trying to address. And so so I think you have a, actually a really good understanding um, simply by the fact that you asked the right question. So. Uh, Dana continues, can you also relate public diaphragm mechanics to the cue? Pretend like you're holding in gas and when to use that cue? Um, Dana, I have never ever used that cue. Um, don't really know why I would want to use that cue actually. Um, the concern that you have there is the interpretation um, of the, the client because when you ask somebody to do that, there could be a number of strategies. Um, I think what you're what you're getting at is you're trying to cue the public floor to do something. Um, the, the concern, though, when you talk about holding in gas, um, is that you may actually um, unintentionally have someone that utilizes a, a more superficial strategy. So now we're going to influence some of the superficial external rotators, or even some of some of glute max. Um, and that's probably what we don't want because what we're gonna do there is we're gonna create a a more of a compressive externally rotated strategy through the the musculature that is below the level of the greater trochanter and that might not be what you're actually looking for um, when you're trying to recapture the capabilities of the pelvic diaphragm. So again, I don't like to use that type of a cue uh, because I, I just don't know what kind of a strategy that I'm going to get. In fact, many times we actually have to cue people out of that strategy to restore the the full movement capabilities of the pelvis and the sacrum to coordinate with the breathing cycle. So again, I, I don't use that cue at all. Um, but I thank you very much for the, the, the those questions. Those are really good questions, Dan. So my next question comes from Alexa. She's a physiotherapy student in Scotland. So I'm about to graduate and will soon be entering the workforce. Congratulations, Alexa. Uh, You have mentioned in some of your past videos, important fields of science that should be considered in PT practice, such as dynamic anatomy and physiology. I was wondering what fields and areas of science you would recommend an entry-level PT to study and read. Additionally, do you have any advice for a new PT about to embark on this epic journey of starting in the field. So my biases in regards to the the sciences that you're gonna use are going to be more towards the physics side of things. So when we think about everything that relies on first principles and how we move, when we talk about pressures and volumes and fluid shifts and gradients and things like that, that all comes from physics. So the better that you understand that, as a foundation of everything that we do, I think the, the, the more logical everything will start to seem. Superimpose that with the dynamic anatomy concept. So understand the foundations of, of how you evolved um, embryologically. So knowing where you came from is a, is a phrase that I use a lot with the, with the Padawans. And so you have to learn how to capture the meaningfulness of the anatomy with the underlying understanding of the physics involved. And so I think that that's where our thought processes really need to go rather than looking at the structural reductionist model that's typically taught in physical therapy school. um, I think that the understanding that we are morphing, we are shape changing versus a series of levers and pulleys that, that behaves in this Euclidean geometric manner, which which doesn't really apply, because when you look at the forces, the forces probably aren't realistic. Um, if you look at where we came from, going way back from an evolutionary perspective, if we think about how we evolved from a single cell, the principles would have to be the same, even on this macro level. The thing that we understand about complexity is that it started from simple rules, and we just repeat those simple rules. So. I would say that spend your time understanding the physics of how we move look at how fluid works look at how gradients influence how those fluids shift and that should be the foundation of your thought processes and then superimpose the dynamic anatomy so learn the anatomy in a context rather than looking at the the dead guy on the slab uh, um, as a we would a cadaver look at this as a, as a fluid model. And I think that that's going to provide you a much greater and useful model in the future. So I I wish you luck. Um, The thing that I would also encourage you to do is get really good at what you do first. So spend a lot of time learning, spend a lot of time um, practicing. You're gonna fail a lot. It's important that you fail, but you fail safely. You never hurt anyone. it's important that you fail and then I would say you need to find a mentor someone that can lead you because there are elements of of understanding that can't be written down they can't be expressed easily this is what we call tacit knowledge and this is what you acquire from from a mentor from experience and so this is where your focus needs to be for the next three to five years and by then you should start to get better at, at determining from a probability standpoint, what would be the best course of action? This is how you're, gonna, you're going to get good as, as a physical therapist. So, so hopefully that provides you little element of guidance in this regard. And um, by all means, keep asking questions. Always ask questions and try to answer them yourselves and then seek out the answers from other people and other resources. But keep questions coming towards, towards me. I'm happy to help you. I love working with students. Um, especially when they are enthusiastic and motivated. So, so thank you, Alexa, and good luck. All right. Next questions come from Nick. So Nick is a, a baseball guy. And so I really like a lot of his questions. So let's go ahead. He's got a, he's got a few here that, that uh, he's asking. <clears throat> so Nick is asking me my opinion. Gee, I hope I have one. Uh, In your opinion, should arm care be aimed towards increasing the dorsal rostral space? Well, first of all, I think the concept of arm care is extremely short-sighted, as if the arm is any more, more, more or less important than any other part of the body. So if you're worried about doing your thrower's 10, which is the most archaic concept in all of baseball and all of throwing, um, you are sadly mistaken and what we need to do is we need to start looking at the whole picture we need to start looking at their individualized physics and then that's how we determine what their needs are so this whole concept of arm care um, once again really needs an update and so um, hopefully as we move forward we'll be able to address some elements of that I've got some some really really good friends in baseball and uh, uh, I will trust in them to help me understand it better and we will move forward in that regard so sorry about the little bias there a little bit a little bit more opinion probably than you were asking for but so be it someone needs to to say it now so we can start to move forward Um, so uh nick continues instead of the typical ICs and wise i liked your your kettlebell armbar video by the way um, are there other ways to challenge the rotator cuff for a baseball player? Of course there are. The rotator cuff is not something that behaves in isolation. It's always involved with any movement um, that, that we're utilizing in any supportive movement, and any active movement that involves the upper extremity. Our rotator cuff um, is, is going to be active. And so let's not single that out as anything more important than anything else. Again, everything works together. Uh, but you do bring up something that's interesting. So I'm going to do a video on these I's, T's, and Y's things because I think that it's prescribed one too often, um, two incorrectly, and uh, um, again, it's just applied sort of as this blanket. Oh, this is a really good exercise. When the reality is, is if you prescribe it to the wrong person at the wrong time or under the wrong circumstance, you're actually creating a problem. So let's go back to your original question here: Should should arm care be aimed at increasing the dorsal rostral space? Maybe if that's the needs of the individual. And so there's there's two extreme archetypes of pitchers and some will benefit from expanding that dorsal rostral space to a greater degree than than those that may already have it and so under certain circumstances the i's t's and y's are a great exercise to utilize for a certain type of pitcher with a certain type of structure and for others it's the worst thing you could possibly do because you're actually going to steal the element of, of expansion that they're going to utilize to position the ball so when we talk about the cocking phase of of throwing a baseball, if I don't have dorsal rostral space, then I have to create a compensatory strategy to cock the baseball. Not usually the best um, choice or or, uh, element to use um, under those circumstances. And so, again, if if I'm already compressed in that area, and if I prescribe the wrong exercise, such as an ITY for that individual, um, I've just magnified his compensatory strategy that he's going to try to utilize to throw a baseball. Now maybe, maybe it appears that you've enhanced performance under some circumstances. So again it's let's consider the fact that well you know some people actually increase their velocity when they use a compensatory strategy. If that's your choice, if that's the goal, is to magnify that capability, then you are successful. But let's understand the secondary consequences. Did you put something else at risk? Are you going to promote the possibility that, that we now have a pitcher that has to pitch through lower back pain or elbow pain or shoulder problem, etc. So there's any number of these things. And that's what makes this so complex because as right as we want to seem and as easy it is for me to sit here and, and preach my opinions about, arm care and and physical structure um, when we look at the individual we have to make decisions of what we're trying to chase what we're trying to achieve and then what is the outcome that we desire with the underlying understanding of the secondary consequences and that's something that i can't predict it's something that you can't predict it's something that we have to look at As the individual as their own experience so now we're back to n equals one we're back to the within subjects design model and this is how we have to move forward but we have to move forward with great care and concern and not make these giant leaps of of uh probability we have to work within a framework that allows us to to provide the ultimate level of protection while we chase this performance and again this is very difficult there's not one right answer there are many right answers that are possible here but I love the fact that you asked that question because um, it does bring up a lot of concerns in regards to how we prescribe exercises blindly in many cases, and we just can't do that. We have to start looking at people as, as looking at people as individuals. Uh, moving on, Nick. So from your last video, what does eccentrically yield the sternum mean? So he's talking very, very specifically, about the lead arm in a throw so if we go back to the i believe it was the arm bar video that nick is making reference to uh, or possibly the the padawan video where we talked about baseball throwing i can't remember which it was so we have to understand how muscles behave so this is one of the limitations of thinking in regards to if we look at things that from a concentric contraction standpoint or an eccentric contraction standpoint is that it, it's it's a broad swipe of thought when we don't really see what the muscles are actually capable of doing so for instance if i am reaching forward as a as a as a baseball player to throw and i pronate my lead arm i'm internally rotating at the shoulder for me to have normal non-compensatory internal rotation capabilities i actually have to have a, a pump handle a sternum that can move upward so if if i'm turning inward what we would say is well peck is an internal rotator so it's going to compress the thorax when the reality is is that i can I can behave concentrically at the shoulder, but I can also behave eccentrically at the sternum. So I can allow this expansion to occur here at the sternum, which provides me the positioning to allow this internal rotation to occur. So I have to look at the two ends of the muscle as behaving differently. And so so again, that's why limiting our thought processes to what a shortening contraction versus a lengthening contraction. I could be lengthening at one end of the muscle and concentrically orienting at the other end of the muscle um, simultaneously to allow these movements to occur. That's that's why we have to look at this as shifting volumes and pressures and then shape because the shape of the muscle doesn't necessarily mean that, that I am contracting at both ends when I say it's concentrically contracting. I can have an eccentric orientation at one end and a concentric orientation at the other that allows movement to occur at one end and limits or creates motion that occurs at the other end. So this is a very, very important... Un- thing to understand because this is how we perform so Nick I hope that answers your question um, and we're gonna talk a little bit more about these kind of things in regards to to baseball and movement um, as as we move forward because I, we're getting a lot more questions in regards to performance um, Nick wraps up his questioning uh, with uh, training thoracic spine movement and is it is it worth doing in isolation well Nick I think that you probably answered your question as soon as you ask this one, um, is it worth doing anything in isolation? It never happens that way, so let's not try. Now, from a therapeutic standpoint, sometimes we have to do something that's a little bit more local um, to to stimulate a response, but in general, as we're looking at movement on, on the gross scale, trying to, to target a singular element, especially something like thoracic spine movement look you got rib cage you got you got fluid volumes in the in the the lungs you've got organ movement um etc all of these things are influencing what the outcome is i have influences from the top down so so the way that this the cervical spine is oriented the way that the pelvis is oriented all influence what these outcomes are and so what we have to do is we have to start thinking about how these things integrate in all movements so so when we see videos of People laying over foam rollers talking about oh, I need more spinal extension. That's that's again. It's an archaic concept It needs to be eliminated. We can't think about these things um, from an isolated standpoint We have to say, okay, how does this element of of the physiology interact with the other elements of physiology now? How do I influence that so it could be as simple as is how I orient my my pelvis during a, a certain type of activity where i sequence the the breathing cycle to promote expansion or compression and that's how i'm going to recapture these things so again i would encourage you not to think of anything in isolation uh short of something that's very very clinical that that maybe needs to be done to allow us a window of opportunity to do something that's a little bit more global and and integrated so again thank you for that question nick that was pretty awesome. All right, next question, I believe these come from Justin. So Justin wrote uh, uh, quite a bit here. So we'll try to knock these out a little bit at a time. So Justin says, if you're doing some sort of compression of the pelvis laterally for anterior-posterior expansion, would that not bias interrotation rotation of the ileum, widen the IPA, and mutate the sacrum? Would this potentially be disadvantageous for a person with a wide ISA as they're already biased towards this pelvic and sacral orientation. Well, uh, if you blindly apply a compressive strategy, Justin, to, to the, the pelvis laterally to try to create the anterior-posterior expansion, um, maybe, but, 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 but not so, because you wouldn't choose to do, use that, that uh, strategy on, on any old uh, pelvic shape. So, so this is typically done. So when we use a lateral compressive strategy, manual or otherwise, um what we're looking at is somebody that already has an anterior posterior compression and so this is going to show up with somebody that has a loss of both external rotation and internal rotation and it's usually internal rotation to the extreme so this is actually something that may have a zero or even a minus measurement in regards to their their internal rotation. And so under those circumstances, what we have is a a pelvis that went from something that's round to to something that is more compressed anterior, posterior, and wider. And so what we actually need to do is, we need to create a a lateral compressive force. And we can do this through certain exercises, but but in some cases, we need a little bit of an assistance to actually reshape the pelvis. And so we can use a lateral compressive strategy um, when when we're trying to do that. So that would be the circumstance. So when you think about an anterior-posterior compression, it's a reorientation of the acetabulum. It's a compressive strategy where I get concentric orientation on both sides, so the anterior and posterior sides of the joint. And I'm pushing, if we're using the hip as an example, I'm pushing the femur directly into the hip socket. And that's why I lose both those motions and I lose the internal rotation to the extreme. So again, we're not blindly applying this lateral compressive strategy. We're actually picking a very, very specific type of pelvis that we're going to apply that to. So the concern that you express in the first part of your question, um, I I can understand why you would ask that. But again, you have to look at which type of a pelvis that we're actually applying this technique to. So we're not blindly applying this under every circumstance. Uh, Justin continues, what is the specific shape change of the pelvis you're attempting to create with my lateral slide slide drag video? So we kind of covered this a little bit earlier, but but let me just uh, reiterate. So uh, as we're creating the thoracic, uh, compressive element, those mechanics will create a downward uh, pressure down towards the pelvis, which will actually enhance our ability to reshape the pelvis as well. Then you superimpose the, the stepping element and we're using muscle activity. And, and under this circumstance, when you're looking at the, the lateral slat, sled drag, what I'm trying to do is create a posterior expansion of the pelvis on the left, maintain the anterior compression, um, and then we're trying to flip-flop that entire circumstance on the right side. So we're actually expanding the left posterior, we're compressing the right posterior, and, and reshaping the pelvis under those circumstances simply by driving the, the stepping strategy. So hopefully that answers your, your shape-change question. Um, Justin continues. In the video that you posted with the Padawan talking about cutting and pitching mechanics, I believe you allude to a yielding contraction of the posterior thorax on the side of the turn. I've always been under the impression that in order to turn, you need to bias air into the anterior thorax and bring the pump handle up. Can you clarify the shape change of the thorax associated with the rotation where we need to to yield and overcome in order to have the most efficient strategy for something like change of direction in pitching baseball? I can actually give you a great representation. I spent all day yesterday in my crafty lab, if you will. Uh, So uh, I created a little bit of a thorax here. So the the stick's gonna be the spine. I got a little bit of a sternum here. We're gonna call this a, a lower, lower sternal ribs so this is going to be you know one of the ribs like three through six maybe and then we got a first rib up here and so what i'm going to do is i'm just going to reorient this so you can see it so we're going to look up inside the thorax and hopefully you'll be able to see this on camera and i will influence the the sternal position and now I, I will turn the spine and so let's just say that i want to make a a right turn so right's going to be this in this direction okay so I'm going to lift the pump handle up on the left so you can see that right away and then i'm going to turn the spine this away and so you'll see the shape change right there okay let me get a little bit closer to the camera okay so what i have is an anterior expansion on the left and a posterior expansion on the right and that creates a right turn and so if i was going to flip-flop and go the other way you can see that i expand on the left uh, posteriorly and expand on the right anteriorly, and that's a left turn. And so these are the mechanics that we need to try to influence. So as I step back on the on the right, or as I as I move into a cut on the right, I'm going to be in that orientation there. As I push myself out, I'm going to reorient and I change direction. And so this is how this is how we create the shape change in the thorax so hopefully that gives you a little bit of a visual representation of the mechanics that we're actually talking about Um, because i do think there's a misunderstanding as to how we turn and again if we don't have these these expansion and compression capabilities we have limited turn so again these are the choices that you're going to make um, under certain exercise circumstances or activity circumstances to reinforce or to limit those. So again, if I have somebody that is a much more linear or, or straight ahead athlete, I'm gonna to try to eliminate a lot of those turning mechanics, but for baseball players, for dynamic athletes and in, in, in on the field, then I wanna to start to reinforce these, these kind of mechanics. And so hopefully Justin, that clarifies a little bit of your, your turning question. Next question comes from Brian. I heard you discussing on a video about catching a medicine ball throw and how it teaches us to catch our guts. Could you go a little more, could you go a little more into this? There we go. Um, Where can someone read more about the forces produced by the guts or the internal organs during movement? Well, so if you wanna read about how this moves and such, um, you're gonna have to start to look at some of the if you look at some of the visceral manipulation literature that's that's available um, there, there are some some scans if you look at the cancer research you will actually see a great deal about how organs move so when they do radiation treatment on certain types of cancers so let's say you had liver cancer and then they want to apply radiation to the liver, they have to be very, very specific. So we don't want to destroy healthy liver tissue. So what they have to do is they have to understand how the liver actually moves as you breathe. And, and so we th- th- it creates a predictive element. It allows us to understand how the organs are moving as we move and how as, as we breathe. But what I would also encourage you to do is to understand how the internal organs evolve embryologically because it provides us a strong element of, of structure and orientation. And that's gonna come from um, studying some embryology. So I got a couple books here. Ugh. So maybe the world's thickest anatomy book. This is actually the Grace, the, the latest edition of Grace, which I love. Um, the embryology in here is is rock solid. I suggest you, you, you try to own this. Um, you may wanna go with the Kindle unless you're really, really strong, because this is a, you know, like 1,500 pages or something like that. Um, but great, great embryology. The other uh, embryology resource I like is Larson's, if you wanna take a look at that. Um, so understand where you came from. I'm a big fan of that. So when you understand the structure of the internal organs, it lends, it, lends itself to how a lot of those organs are oriented and behave. And then it's just a matter of understanding how it moves when we move. So now we're back to physics. Well, now we're back to, to fluid movement and gradients and such. Um, so you got to put the structure together. you got to put the physics together. And then you just basically start to pay attention to how we move and what, what these internal organs could be doing under certain circumstances. So much like a wave crashing into a rock, those organs are constantly moving inside of you. They produce forces that we have to manage. And, and a lot of times, um, when, especially when we, we see are young athletes performing agility activities and we see their lack of control in in certain elements of of cutting and deceleration we can actually uh, identify or, or picture what these internal forces are doing to produce the external strategies and then that allows us to make some decisions in regards to training and then it's just a matter of determining do we get the outcome that we desired were we correct in our assumptions and then we're working again based on probabilities which is how we do everything when we're dealing with humans so um, hopefully brian that gives you a a place to start so to, to reiterate embryology and physics and observation. So, so go with those three, three elements. Um, my final question comes from Misha. Could you please talk about the relationship between the ability to expand the upper thorax and neck movement? I I can do that. I can do that. Uh, I can't figure out the exact relationship between the thorax expansion and the ability to rotate the neck. Thank you. Okay. So let's not overcomplicate this. Let's make it really, really simple. The dorsal rostral thorax and the lower cervical spine are just like the sacrum and the lumbar spine. So in regards to the the movement capabilities, the movement strategies, and the coordinative elements, they are the same. And so when I talk about counter-nutation of the sacrum and we see the lumbar spine moving from its lordotic position to a less lordotic position, we're going to see the exact same thing in the upper cervical spine. So if I need to turn, if I need to be able to turn the lower cervical spine, I need dorsal rostral expansion so i have to have an upper thorax that can um, expand during inhalation this allows the lower cervical spine to actually move towards a, a position that would traditionally be called flexion and this is the position position that allows the cervical spine the lower cervical spine so we're talking about c3 and below to turn So if I have somebody that cannot turn the lower cervical spine in one direction, chances are you've got a compressed dorsal rostral area on the same side. You will see a deficit in in overhead reach, the inability to to flex the shoulder, and turn the the lower cervical spine in an ipsilateral same side direction. And so we have this direct relationship that that is involved with dorsal rostral and lower cervical. When we talk about the upper cervical spine, it should turn in opposition to the lower cervical spine. So again, if I have an upper cervical deficit, I need to make sure that I have a lower cervical spine that can turn in the opposite direction. So again, I can use my overhead reach, my my shoulder flexion measurement to help me determine whether I have lower cervical spine rotation or whether I have an upper cervical spine deficit as well. So keep that in mind. So think dorsal rostral first, I have to have the capabilities there. That's going to free up the lower cervical spine for rotation, all right? So as I inhale the, the dorsal rostral, I have, must have an inhale position of the lower cervical spine, which is lower cervical spine flexion, and then upper cervical spine extension, and that's going to allow me to, to restore all of those movement capabilities. So hopefully um, that leads you in the right direction, Misha. So that about wraps up the Q&A for this week, November 10th. Keep the questions coming. Askbillhartman at gmail.com. Askbillhartman at gmail.com is the email address. You can throw up your questions on Instagram as well. So that's at Bill Hartman PT. You can ca- catch me on Facebook at Bill Hartman PT as well. Um, and post your comments on the YouTube videos. We got YouTube videos probably coming up this week. Definitely on something rolling. Hopefully on something ITNY for all you baseball guys and and shoulder people. And uh, other than that, have a great Sunday. Finish up your neuro coffee, kick back, throw your feet up, read a book, get a workout in, whatever it is that you do on Sundays. I'll see you next week.